podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What a great delivery. Left arm around the wicket. Alan Lamb has been cleaned up. It's an unusual action and direction to come left arm around at that pace. Alan Lamb has gone. And they're all watching on the Jags board here. We're now watching on our screens. A magnificent delivery. Wazim Akram brought back just for that purpose. Lamb and Fairbrother had stuck on Pakistan. And now Wazim Akram removes Lamb for 31. It's 5 for 141. Thinking back, all of it was weird. Left-arm seam bowlers barely existed in professional cricket at this point. And if they did, it was to bowl over the wicket with the new ball, swinging it back into right-hand batsmen usually at no more than fast medium. Wasim Akram bowled fast around the wicket and swung the ball away from the right-hander. It was as if a UFO had landed at the MCG. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. In 1979, Pakistan unleashed reverse swing on world cricket, and it has changed the game. The old ball, once thrown to spinners as a necessity, is prepared in legal and illegal ways to go reverse, which is to say, it swings the opposite direction than you would expect a ball to go. Swing low, sweet chariot. Pakistan was not a great team in 1979. This was not the Pakistan we have seen over the last 40 years. They were not seen as all that exciting. They had never won anything major. They had already produced some incredible cricketers, Hanif Muhammad and Fazal Mahmood, certainly. But no one saw them as an up-and-coming team. And Imran Khan was clearly a player of great skill, yet he was averaging 23 with the bat and 33 with the ball. If anything, he was known as more of a playboy than anything else. As a test nation, Pakistan had started well, but then struggled. In their first 95 tests, they had won 16, lost 26, and drawn a staggering 53. They had never beaten England in a series, but they had beaten India, West Indies, and Australia once each. It was New Zealand, another struggling team, who they beat regularly. But they were also the first team to ever lose to New Zealand in a test series. At this point, they had not left any lasting impact on cricket. Cricket was not yet the game that most of us grew up with. England and Australia were pretty much the best teams in the sport from the beginning of time until the late 70s. Perhaps South Africa could have done differently, but did not. And then the West Indies took over. But India, Pakistan and New Zealand still hadn't had their awakenings and Sri Lanka was not yet a test nation. In 1978 and 79, Pakistan was playing an Australian team that was trying to fill up the numbers without all of their World Series cricket players. Pakistan was always a good chance to win that series, but would anyone care? Surely an asterisk would be placed against them for the win, and they may not win. At the MCG for the first test, both teams struggled in the first innings, while Rodney Hogg and Imran Khan bowled very fast. But in the second innings, Pakistan made 353. Majid Khan made 100, which meant Australia needed 382 to win. Australia, or let's be honest, Australia light, did quite well. Dab Watmore, before he became a World Cup winning coach for Sri Lanka, was the only Australian out when they crossed 100. 
But then something odd happened. Andrew Hilditch moved across his stumps when he was on 62, trying to leg glance a ball that faded away from him. It clipped the outside of Lake Stump. The commentators called it a peculiar dismissal. Graham Yallop, the accidental and unwilling Australian captain, was run out not long after. But then Alan Border and Kim Hughes put on a huge partnership. And at tea on the final day, Australia had beaten the new ball, needed less than 100 runs, and had their two best batsmen at the crease. That's when Safraz Nawaz came back on. The end of the over from Safraz, and that's the first over in four that he hasn't taken a wicket. It was a maiden, 35 overs, six maidens, seven for 86. At this point, Safraz had 107 wickets with only two five-wicket hauls, and his average was on the wrong side of 30. He was a medium-paced bowler, and in a time when there were lots of bowlers who were slower, he still stood out for his lack of pace. At this stage, he'd had a 10-year test career, but there was no excitement in it. It's just that what we didn't know, or certainly hadn't been mentioned enough at this point, was that Safraz had a trick that had been passed down to him that would, well, change everything. A bit like the Dusra, maybe the Wrongen, certainly the reverse sweep. Players who eventually invented them and perfected them were not really the players who probably first did them. There were players before who had tried them one-off times. With the Dusra, there was a player who would use it in the nets but didn't use it in a game. Reverse swing happened at times purely accidentally, and teams would talk about it, and occasionally it would even seep into cricket literature, but very rarely, and no one really understood what was happening with it. There had been rumours and stories for years that in certain situations, an outswing bowler holding the new ball would turn into an in-swing bowler. There are stories around the West Indies doing it in the 1950s and also into the 1960s, but it didn't seem a repeatable skill until the 1960s and Pakistan. Salim Altaf became known as someone who had this skill. He played 21 tests, but it was Salim Murr who only ever played seven first-class games and averaged 40 when bowling, was the man who allegedly passed on the information to Safaraz. All three of these men played cricket in Lahore. That's not a coincidence. If there's anything we would learn about reverse swing, probably throughout the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, is that quite often it's very much to do with the outfield, the pitches, the abrasion, these sorts of things. So obviously, for whatever reason, Lahore was a real hotspot for that. But after Safraz was taught this, he didn't share it widely. Instead, he spent years perfecting the art, occasionally for Pakistan, but more often with Northlands. But it wasn't just Safraz doing this. Others were learning it too. He just had a head start, and by 1978, he'd almost perfected it. Safraz to Hilditch. Bowled him. Bowled him around his legs. Bowled him around his legs. He went over far too much, trying for the leg lands, and the ball just clipped the leg stop. That's an unusual way to go when you have 62 runs on the board. And uh... When he came back on at the MCG for that spell, Safras's run-up was shorter. He'd also slowed down his pace a little bit. He bowled Alan Border. Graham Wood was caught behind next ball. Peter Sleet was clean bowled. Kim Hughes was never one to defend, deciding that with Safras getting all these wickets, the best thing to do was to hit him out of the attack. He found mid-on. Next over, Wayne Clark was bowled, playing back to a ball he couldn't understand. Then there was a no-ball which went for, obviously, one run. Rodney Hogg was LBW, and when Alan Hurst wasn't out first ball, the crowd actually cheered. Next ball, Hurst was caught behind. Australia had been 305 for three. They were now 310 all out. Safras did have two for 85. He now had nine for 86. Seven for one, he took. 
Nine for 86 is now a number that adorns the walls of the MCG as part of an art installment. Most of the Australian batsmen had helmets at that point. They were prepared for Imran Khan's scary pace, and they would survive that. But it was at the other end, a man who bowled as if his hip needed to be replaced, shuffled in with this weird sideways action and bowled just above medium pace. But that old ball veered in dramatically. Since then, Safras has said repeatedly that he wasn't bowling reverse swing. Perhaps he's scarred by the ball-tampering accusations that go with reverse. It was seen very much as a dark art, if not an illegal art, for 20 years, maybe even almost 30 years. Reverse swing was seen as this naughty thing to do, and perhaps Safraz didn't want to be involved with that. But I've spent a lot of time looking at this footage, and while the footage is grainy and not perfect, it is impossible to think that this is normal swing. It doesn't look like it at all. It has that heavier feel. The ball doesn't have that normal curve that new ball swing does. It has that sort of diagonal lean. It seems intent on taking out middle and leg stump. There is something unnatural about the entire thing, like the ball has become sentient and the batsman is a victim. All the swing was late as well, and combined with a load-bouncing MCG pitch, it became almost impossible to keep out. Thanks to a couple of generations of very fast bowlers, batsmen were evolving to protect themselves from bounces. But as they did, Safraz Nawa showed the world reverse swing. Their heads were safer. Their leg stumps were not. Well, if I might just resume the dismissals. Border was bowl Safraz 105. Wood, court Bari, bowl Safraz, no score. Sleep, bowl Safraz, no score. Hughes, court Mosin, bowl Safraz, 84. Clark, bowl Safraz, no score. Hogg, LBW, Safraz, no score. Hurst, court Bari, bowl Safraz, no score. And Wright remained not out one. So in that... Uh, Australian total, there were five ducks and safras finished up with the magnificent figures of 9 for 86. I'll give you his full figures. 35.4 overs, seven maidens, 9 for 86, including a spell of 7 for 1 from 30 deliveries. Safras would eventually go on to pass this ball on to other bowlers. Imran Khan was the main one. With his pace and skill, this made him even more dangerous. He took 8 for 60 against India in 1982, and that ball would then be passed on to Wakar Yunus and Wazim Akram. But this wasn't just a Pakistan thing. And weirdly, outside of Lahore, on one of the other hubs of reverse swing was where Safras had destroyed Australia, Melbourne. Tasmanian cricketer Max Walker had played his cricket for Victoria, as at that time Tasmania weren't playing shield cricket. And he talked of learning reverse swing from fellow Victorian Alan Connolly, who learned it in the 1970s and used it for Victoria, Australia and Middlesex. There were whispers of other teams as well, also using it. But after Wacker and Wazim used it to destroy England, it started popping up pretty much everywhere. Australia used it on occasion, the South Africans too. But the next big boom outside of Pakistan was the 2005 Ashes, when England used four-seamers and reversed to win. Where Pakistan was once tarnished as cheats just for bowling it, they got less stick as the decades rolled on and others started using it. But even as it became a global cricket toy, there was still plenty of talk about the illegal methods used to make the ball swing. England, through Marcus Drasgothic, would later admit to rubbing Murray mints on the balls in 2005. South Africa, who would ride reverse swing to number one in the world, would have three occasions where they were caught tampering with the ball. And around the world, players were caught using all sorts of method. Mike Atherton's sawdust, Chris Pringle's bottle top, Mick Lewis's concrete. Not to mention that players now use nail strengthening liquid to ensure that their fingernails can do even better. One of the things they use is the same kind of liquid that vets use on horses' hooves. But those are the bigger moments that are caught. 
Do you know how many cricketers in the world can't throw a ball in from a regular size boundary? It's not many. Occasionally a bowler might have a bit of a shoulder problem or there might be a batsman with a particularly weak arm. But as a general rule, pretty much every international cricketer can throw the ball in from most boundaries. And yet they don't. The ball regularly bounces, weirdly right on the pitch, either one of the old dustier pitches or the pitch itself. And wicket keepers who could easily go forward and take the ball on the full don't. They take a step backwards. Sometimes they take five or six steps backwards. And umpires, of course, are aware of this. This has been going on for a long time. Tampering with the ball is not just about reverse swing. If you look at old cricket balls from famous old matches, quite often the seam is uh, raised in a, what would you say, unnatural way. Players have been tampering with the ball since they realized that would help. But when it comes to reverse, of course, as we've talked about with places like Melbourne and Lahore, there are perhaps other reasons why the ball will reverse more naturally in certain situations. So it is possible to make the ball reverse swing legally. It's just that if you want to do it consistently, if you want to do it on demand, generally you have to affect the ball. You have to tamper. And that is what international cricket teams have done for a long time. That is what club cricket teams have done for a long time. And one of my favorite modern cricket facts is about reverse swing and the fact that when Faf du Plessis was caught tampering with the ball, which he was done twice, at one stage he was fined the same amount for tampering with the ball as he was for having the wrong color shoelaces on. Cricket doesn't even really turn a blind eye, it just sort of winks. The Australians really working on the ball. Trying to get that uh, reverse, the South Africans did it so well. All day yesterday, the older you've got, it's so important to get that ball to reverse for the Australians. After this, <laughs> just having a look at uh, what's happening there. What is happening, BJ? What are you talking about? This is the umpires uh, having a chat to Cameron Bancroft. I think they're asking about what he had in his pocket. But of course, if we're talking about reverse swing and ball tampering, when Cameron Bancroft tried to get the ball to reverse swing for Australia by using sandpaper, it became a worldwide scandal. And yet, what was the penalty for the players involved? Smith got a one-match ban, and Bancroft not even that. Sure, Cricket Australia gave them a much lengthier ban, but that wasn't what they were given for the ball tampering. That was for lying and for other reasons. Probably bad PR. Cameron Bancroft is not the only international cricketer who has taken a foreign substance onto the field to affect the ball. He's probably not even the first player to bring sandpaper onto the field. He is a continuation of what cricketers have been doing for a long time. And these are not lone acts either. Many people employed by Cricket Australia, whether they be coaches or other staff or management, knew that this was happening. And it had been happening for a long time. And it had been happening with other teams as well, whether that be sandpaper or slightly more benign products. Tampering is a part of our game, and it has been for quite some time. But here's the interesting thing. There are many people within the game who think that ball tampering should be legal, as reverse swing is such a brilliant part of cricket now. And it's kind of hard to argue that reverse swing isn't a great thing for the game. It makes the previously boring periods of an innings far more exciting quite often. Although the problem then becomes, where do you draw the line on what is and isn't legal? If you allow fingernails, for instance, the players would continue to grow them and use things to make them longer and sharper. Essentially, you would have bottle tops on the ground. 
So the whole thing is tricky. But there's one thing that I know about reverse swing, and I think this has been the case since at least the early to mid-90s when it first became very sexy, and it became a thing that we all talked about a lot. There are few better whispers in cricket than when two cricket fans sort of looked over at each other and one just says, did that reverse? Oh, the hope, the panic, the anarchy. It's like anything could happen from that moment forward. Two overs earlier, a medium pacer was just dotting up at one end while a off spinner was trying to get through his overs. And now suddenly you just have this ball that has just got its own mind. And it is an exciting part of cricket, even if it is not always legal. Oh, Baldy with an end Oh, what a beauty. Well, celebrations all round in the Pakistan camp. Umar Gul back into the attack. Wicket, dot, dot, wicket. While historically this goes back to West Indian, Pakistani and Australian cricketers of certain ages and obviously Safras Nawaz, when it comes down to most of us, we think about was a Makram. Because when the ball was in his hand, it had its own mind. It could be placed on the same spot repeatedly on a good day, but it also leapt up, cut left, cut right, swung in, swung out. It was as if Wasim Akram's deliveries were being operated by a remote control. Left-arm bowlers were supposed to be brought in for a few tests and then fade away. Wasim Akram got brighter and brighter, even as the ball got duller and duller. The run-up was reportedly 17 paces, but it felt like six super-quick steps and then an arm that was invisible to the eye. I still remember the first time I was at the MCG and I went to a test match and it was Pakistan. I sat side onto the game. I was around 10 years old and I just couldn't see. I couldn't see his arm. I couldn't see the ball. It was just a blur. A beautiful blur, but that's all it was. And that's how it appeared to so many batsmen over the years. He was the combination of every single tape ball bowler in Pakistan street cricket history. And when Wasim Akram bowled, it felt like anything could happen. And of course, in the 1992 World Cup final, it did. Pakistan had been an extraordinary team in test cricket in the 1980s. For a team that had struggled coming into that decade, they became one of the best teams in the world. Unfortunately for them, it just happened to collide with the West Indies being even better. So Pakistan didn't get the credit they deserved. And with England 141 for four after 35 overs, England needed just over 100 runs with the 15 overs left with their two best and set batsmen and a chance of making Pakistan finish second again. But Wasim Akram was bowling around the wicket to Alan Lamb. He slanted the ball in, the ball went away, so did Alan Lamb. Next delivery from this tattered, painted white ball was fast and around the wicket again. Chris Lewis was the batsman. But again, the lifeless ball moved, this time back towards Lewis. The ball wasn't following any normal swing patterns at all. Wasn't Macram was in control of it. He wasn't setting fire to England, he was breathing fire. In 1979, reverse swing rocked the MCG because of a Pakistani. In 1992, it happened again. And this time, it was even bigger. Subtract Lewis from that list. Wazim Akram is on the hat-trick. Played on. And that's it. The last episode of season one. We'd like to thank everyone who listened, shared, and most of all, the Patreon supporters. We didn't really know what to expect when making this podcast. Most cricket podcasts are interview or chat-based. This one was narrated and written, and it's about history, which isn't always that sexy a topic. I thought I'd do one season and see how it went. Well, it went pretty well. 
We could tell that straight away from just the amount of you who have reached out to us and the reviews and everything else. So this is clearly a podcast that people want. So I'm happy to announce there will be a season two. But even before that, I've got a four-part miniseries and I'm going to sort of wedge in there. So you'll have to wait for us to write them. But trust me, I am on it. Thank you so much for your support. But right now, I'm off to read old cricket books and think about Aubrey Faulkner. Oh, you don't know about him? Well, let me tell you about him eventually. If you are listening to this podcast, you may also enjoy my other show, Red Inca. It's a podcast about stories and issues in cricket, told by the experts who have followed it or the people who've lived them. We've had Dan Norcross talking about cricket commentary, Wright Thompson on his Sachin Tendulkar piece, and a bunch of cricketers like Andrew Balburnie, Tamal Mill, Sean Massoud, and Alex Hartley. It's a weekly podcast with a different theme for every show. Sports Social Podcast Network.